You're a legend. <laughs> Love it, man. Awesome. Welcome to another episode of the Project Fitness Podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with a returning guest and a sponsor of the podcast from the Ready State uh, program, Kelly Sturette. Dr. Kelly, how you doing? Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. And today, you're returning on to the podcast, and we're talking about longevity. And we're going to discuss how longevity affects your average person or general pop, how it affects an athlete, maybe recreational, maybe professional athletes. And uh, just a second ago, you and I were talking about the master age athletes. And I was just saying that a, a series of mine have gone through you know, the Ready State program they use on a regular basis. And as a powerlifting coach, I can see a significant transformation in how they can recover from their session to session. So we're going to dive deep and we're going to dig into some of the master athletes as well as other things. Oh, well, since I'm a master's athlete, I'm into it. <laughs> so like at what level master's athlete? Because you do, you do a series of things. I know you do, um, you do downhill biking. Well, I'm a, I'm 48 and I love to play. And usually once or twice a year, we jump into something hairy. I just uh, went down to Africa. I was in Zimbabwe and I paddled the Zambezi at very high water. Uh, so, you know, class 60 kilometers of class four or five water. It was very big, very pushy. And what I really like to do is once in a while, set some kind of task up for myself, you know, the, the lifting competitions were less exciting to me these days. Mm -hmm. But what is interesting is what I love is called adventure fitnessing, where you get to see and test your readiness against something that feels like a big, crazy challenge, right? Yeah. So what kind of other things have you done over the years besides that? Oh, man, I ran an ultra marathon. I've done crazy six-day bikes. I've ridden 100-day, you know, we've done 100-mile uh, bike rides. We've done, uh, you know, jump into this, a Spartan, you know, beast Mm -hmm. There's just, there's a lot of things I've jumped in powerlifting meets. Um, you know, that I think the idea is we got really obsessed with the gym for a hot minute mm -hmm. and that was really great. And because what we really ended up doing was helping people create a movement and a diagnostic language. And for the first time in a long time, people were really engaged in, and are engaged in real strength and conditioning training. And you, you can see on the internet and the different, you know, people will fight about which style is better, or how many days a week you need to squat or what squat mm -hmm. is better. But ultimately, people now are beginning to squat and deadlift and hinge and pull. And, and we're starting to see really a dichotomy now where we're leaving behind or beginning to leave behind potentially fitness as entertainment, which is totally fine. Don't get me wrong. But it's not, you can't say fitness as entertainment or athleisure is a best way to prepare yourself to be durable or the mm -hmm. best way. It's like saying, why well, play soccer? Why am I durable, right? Well, you know, fitness is entertainment. Like going to a spin class is very much akin to playing pickup basketball. And let's view those things in the same way. Like you, you love that. There are benefits from playing pickup basketball, but fitness isn't one of them. That's not why we play pickup basketball, right? We're in a group. We belong together. There's great music. We have a, you know what I mean? There's, there's self-actualization happening. All of the reasons why Zumba is amazing. But if we're talking about creating a durable person, what you can begin to see is, hey, there may be some, that fitness as entertainment may create some holes in your programming, in your being. Maybe it's metabolic pathways because you're, you, know, you just don't go hard in the paint very often. Maybe it's because you just aren't exposing yourself to certain ranges of motion. Maybe that you're just ends up that you're, you're weak, <laughs> you're doing mm -hmm. this thing. And it turns out you don't actually have to be very strong to go to a spin class. Who knew? Right. So the real question then is the, and the thing we should be asking is how do we create a fitness that is really a good 
all around durability practice so that you can go out into the world and express that fitness. And that's what I'm talking about when I say we've now suddenly created a movement language where if you can go buy a kettlebell at like basically the grocery store, which is a true fact now, that means something has happened in our consciousness. And people are like, oh, there's something valuable here. And swinging a kettlebell, as we know, is just a great movement. You know, I've, I'm a huge fan of kettlebell swings for the general populations. And, and for, you know, frankly, everyone, the, the kettlebell just gets heavier and heavier and we don't have to do tens of thousands, but there's a lot of ways to, you know, load the hamstrings, mm -hmm. work on eccentric loading, et cetera, et cetera. But suddenly now we're in a place where we have fetishized fitness a little bit, or, or it's, it's run its natural course where people have become super into fitnessing. We spend a lot of time at the gym and what we begin to see are artifacts of scholarship where we argue about mundane minutiae and sometimes we miss the point of what we're training and we miss the point of validating what we're doing by either contest or experience outside the gym. So how many pull-ups do you do need to be able to do to be a good skier? Well, I'd argue some, but I'd argue that if you went on a ski trip and your pull-up numbers went down, that's actually an okay thing to do. So that's where we are right now a little bit. And then that that's, means that we suddenly have a language and we have enough people who've engaged in a sort of a formal movement practice now that is very serious. And, and not, we're not the first generation to do this, certainly. I think the Greeks did it. I think there have been martial arts traditions. I think, you know, the Chinese have been lifting stones for thousands of years. I just think we've been obsessed with this kind of thing for a long time. If you look at George Haber and his movement, MoveNet in France, his movement standards, like being able to swim a kilometer, being able to run a kilometer, being able to move yourself through space, like, woo, those are really brutal standards that are almost you know, over 100 years old. So if we've been thinking about this for a minute, now I think we're a lot more sophisticated and have a lot more access right and we're beginning to see what those things look like because we're seeing a lot more people do incredible things into their 40s 50s 60s and 70s that's that i think is a fun expression of it i think that the gym has always been tested in contests as you mentioned before yes you go in the gym how many pull-ups you do you go to a crossfit competition okay the wad is first one to do a thousand whatever right power lifting weight lifting right. you see it, it makes a lot of sense but you're saying that you know, as we are aging or as uh, the industry is aging, people are now gravitating towards other things. What can you do in the gym that's going to make you better outside at life? An example was you just jumped into a random beast. Am I right to say that? Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 you know, the idea is, I think, you know, there's a time in your life, certainly, where if you have a busy job, when you, are, you have a newborn, when you have stress in your life, if all you can do is get to the gym for 30 minutes, that's your practice. Cool. That's enough. But that's, for me, that's not enough. I want you to, you know, it's like having this big polished engine that you never get to test, right? The whole, mm -hmm. you know, smooth seas don't make great sailors, right? The boat isn't supposed to be kept in the harbor. And, and sometimes I think when we fail to sort of consummate or take the next step, it's difficult for us to really understand inputs and outputs, right? And specifically, I think where the sometimes we get a little mashed up is when we have this really complete, rigorous physical practice in the gym that is all encompassing, there's not a lot of energy left to actually go do a sport. You can't, I can't take a, a cyclist and run them through one of your powerlifting workouts and then still have them go ride. It's too much volume because powerlifting, we can take the tenets of powerlifting and really make good, good cyclists who are strong and durable and, and well-skilled 
but oftentimes we can't simultaneously train for a powerlifting event and be a professional cyclist like those things. And everyone should understand that. I don't think that's a, that's a radical idea and not one that you're even proposing, but one of the things that I think gets lost in this conversation is, well, I have all of these tools and all of these skills. My girls need to go play volleyball and their students and they're in high school. How much do I expose them? What's the minimum dose? What are movement minimums? What are capacity and skill minimums? I think we've had a hard time judging that. And what we see is that, you know, when we, you know, we get kids on the other side who are playing, you know, baseball year round and your elite 10 year old pitcher isn't able to do five good pushups and he's 15 or can't do a pull-up or can't front squat 60 kilos or, you know what I mean? Can't swing a kettlebell. And suddenly I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like the other side of that is, is that we have, you know, hyper-specialized machines, humans who also aren't durable enough because they don't have these minimums. And I think that's where we're kind of struggling to what, what is the minimum and, and who owns what and, and how can we decentralize it? Does everyone need an elite coach? Well, it really helps, but if we can't do that, you know, how do we train the populace to be able to go out and safely press in their garage, right? Yeah, and you mentioned language uh, multiple times. You said we need to talk about specific language. You know, for general pop, for, you know, pro athletes, for, you know, even kids or, or budding novice coaches, what kind of language should, um, should they be aware of or should they be using when we're talking about our, our bodies or exercise? Well, you know, I think it falls into sort of two categories. The first category is sort of, the environment in which our human selves find ourselves, right? I think through two and a half million years of evolution, uh, let me give you an example. I'll back up. This will make it more clear. Matt Walker, who wrote a great book called Why We Sleep. Great book. Has a, has, is a great book. And, and there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that I think is notable about that book is that he points out that, you know, we've been around, you know, human beings haven't really changed in 10,000 years. Um, We've been on this planet two and a half million years in some form or another. Sleep isn't a really good use of our time that we don't, we can't reproduce. We can't hunt. We can't create. It's a time where the brain has to, you know, aggregate, synthesize, clear waste, restore. Like that's what the, that sleep is. And it would be certainly have been a huge evolutionary boon if we could have shaved 10% of that off, right? 10% of our sleep, just you're supposed to sleep. We like seven to eight hours. Well, if you could just you know, shave off 10% of that, that would be an evolutionary advantage because you could reproduce more, hunt more, et cetera, et cetera. But it turns out that in two and a half million years of evolution, you can't, we have these sleep minimums. So it turns out sleep is hugely important to the human. And we're sort of at the limits of, you know, how, what is our minimum for sleep? So that's an example of, there are fundamental biological, biologic practices that have to be set and nurtured if we're gonna have a stable, durable human. Uh, a way of thinking of this is that we see a lot of arguments about how we're gonna climb Everest, and what tools and route we're gonna use, but everyone isn't even at base camp yet. So we're having these very sophisticated, nuanced conversations about what to do, but the, the base practices aren't there. And then we argue about, well, this technique is better than this technique, or, you know, there's no research to show that squatting is actually good for you in mean, those kinds of conversations, which mm -hmm. are really just inane. Awful. What we need to do is say, well, what is fundamental and essential to the human first? What is this physical practice? And so the language should be these minimums of, well, you need to move a lot more during the day. You need to max out your movement. And if you don't, don't panic. You're durable. And, but tomorrow you got to move more. And so we're starting to see movement and sleep. 
do you feel safe? Are you belong in a community, in a tribe? Do you, do you have good relationships or do you feel love? I mean, that's as important to me as, you know, you eating micronutrients, you know what I mean? Like, you know, look, I want you to eat more fruit and vegetables. I want you to up your protein. And if you find that to be you know, radical, you, you're not, you're missing the whole point, right? And that we see that these fundamental based practices can be adjusted up and adjusted down how much sleep, you know, what is our minimum, how much fruit and vegetables, what is an ideal amount of protein, right? Those, those things, should I get some sunlight in my body? Probably that's really important. Um, that is our sort of environmental language. And what we're seeing is a lot of times that creates confusion because these processes are tightly coupled and tightly hidden from us. So if I have a newborn or jump on a red eye or have a big deadline or I'm super stressed, I have a bad night's sleep. What happens? It's gonna if you if you deny that, then you do not know what it means to be a working modern adult. Suddenly, that next day you're a little bit sleepy. You know, you lowered the desire to train is lower. You have some coffee, and then to get through the day at four o'clock, you have some coffee, right? And then you're like, boom, I'm, I'm going to make it. Oh, thank goodness. And I have you know done this myself. Mm. Um, you know, just as an anecdote, you know, there was a time where um, I went through a blood panel. I had two newborns, uh, two little kids, you know, the gym, the, the other business, all these other things. And I went through a blood panel and the woman says, so I see here, you, you're reporting that you drink one to two cups of coffee a day. And I was like, there's no hyphen. That was my choice. And she's like, what? And I was like, yeah, 12 cups of coffee. I was three 20 ounce Americanos from Starbucks, 12 <laughs> shots of espresso. That's what I was doing. So no hyphen. <laughs> she was like, what? It was like one to two, two to three, three to four. And I was like 12. So my point is that it's, this is normal, but then in order to hit the brakes and fall asleep, because you haven't accumulated enough non-exercise activity, you've had some caffeine late in the day, you haven't, you're highly stressed, you hit the brakes with some alcohol, right? And, or you, and just so we're clear, we call that self-soothing. You're just managing with the tools that you have to solve a problem. There's no, there's no judgment in this. I'm like, well, if I, if I look around and the, the way I can make myself feel better and relax immediately as a human is to take my hand out of the box and drink some bourbon. You know what I mean? That is really the truth, right? So suddenly though, I now have added bourbon and caffeine. What's my sleep quality look like? And I get caught in this, this cycling where it's really difficult to understand what's what. And then we go for a while. Now my brain starts to perceive that stiffness in the knee is, is a threat, right? And I'm starting to throw air signals. My brain is more twitchy. I'm less durable. Plus I'm pre-diabetic plus, right? You start to see that these things compound and then I'm under huge loads because I'm going to go to my powerlifting club because that's where I express myself. And all of a sudden what we have is a mismatch between human and environment. And what we're asking ourselves to do, we haven't created this readiness for it. So that environmental language is the first piece. And the second piece is whatever you want to argue about in terms of the best way to do that, that's fine. Those are worthy arguments. But human beings should be able to express a certain amount of movement. And anything that we do from, from physical therapy to strength and conditioning is, is either restoring or training our capacities to have this normative range of motion. So if you can't put your arms over your head, it may or may not cause shoulder impingement. That's, that's fine. That's not the conversation. The conversation is, do you want to have the most movement choice? Do you want to have access to the most function? And do you think that that inability to put your arm behind your back or have internal rotation is going to affect your clean, your snatch, your bench, or maybe make it more difficult for you to get up off the ground when you're 70 or 80? So 
ultimately, what you can realize is that we have this environmental thing that we have to take care of for the just basic biology. And then we have this range of motion and the range of motion that everyone should understand turns out is in a, a foundational language of things like the push-up, the pull-up, the squat. I've taught on every continent except Antarctica and everyone knows what a push-up is. And so we have a unifying language for the first time. It's actually the most universal language. It's more universal than, um, than sign language. It's more universal. I mean, it is a universal language of movement, which is really extraordinary. So suddenly we can argue about what's the best way to restore someone's internal rotation of their hip or their hip flexion. But what we haven't done is said, well, why can't you do this? Why aren't you able to flex your hip? Mm -hmm. That when you get to 90 degrees, you have hip pain or you get to 90 degrees and your butt reverses or you get to 90 degrees and you have to turn your foot out and slam your knee in to solve a problem. I think what I want everyone to understand is that the questions of durability are the same questions and echoes of performance and that when we always keep our mind on what are best practices around performance and don't get me wrong i'm not talking about walking the thin edge of overtraining and disaster to set a world record this is very not what i'm talking about mm -hmm. but when we focus on how do we put the athlete into a position where she or they can do the most work the most often what are the best practices then we can come back to understand what are the best practices of durability if we start saying what's durable first then we, it turns out there's a mismatch between what our daily practices look like. And those things should integrate well. And, and ultimately, I think we've set the bar very low for human function. And I've set, I think we've set the bar low for what we expect people to be able to do into their 50s and 60s and 70s. Yeah, I, I see it a lot of society really caters to that, to the lower common denominator. <clears throat> you see it when, he, when you go on trips. Anytime you want to take a down south trip, there's always that option for, you know, a disability uh, approved variation. You want to go on this trip here, we can have someone, you know, carry you around. Essentially, you want to use this aid, this cane, something, we have these versions for you. But that uh, it blew my mind because my thought process was, why would someone need to go to that that level? Like, it, it seems to be. Yeah. Catered. And what we're seeing is this is the, the I think the distinction right now when you're hearing people, you know, point a finger or or pointed out without a solution is that those people who are, who, for whom that is the only option maybe came out of a system or a tradition that didn't have all the information, right? It's complicated. People's food choices are complicated. They're how their mom fed them, how they soothe, how they use food for, for self-soothing. Did you grow up in a food desert? Did you have a family that cooked and sat down and ate meals? Were you in an athletic training environment that used fuel as fuel, uh, food as fuel or food as restrictions so you can make a weight class? I mean, you see all of the minds you know, in there. Plus, mm -hmm. we have all this entertainment. All of a sudden, we're like, well, I can just drink a five-hour energy drink and, you know, and watch Netflix all night long. And, and I don't think people realize how long the game is. And then suddenly people end up in a position where things have been taken away from them in terms of movement choice and, and durability and viability and options. And that's the last thing you left. The conversation then gets a little bit convoluted because then we're like, hey, you know, what's the fastest way to get you out of this burning building, right? And that's where we need to say, well, hey, why are you in the burning building? Why is the building burning? <laughs> and those are much bigger, more nuanced conversations at a society level where we're now talking about real public health and where do we begin this? And if you're lucky enough to have a coach 
you know, I, I think one of the things that's so remarkable about like uh, this modern strength community, this modern powerlifting community, this modern uh, CrossFit community or, or training community is that it's for the first time in people's lives, they're in a, a real health practice. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons they love it and defend it and, you know, and are so uh, passionate about the thing that they do because it's, they're like, oh, this is working for me. I wish I'd had this decades ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sp- speaking on longevity, when we, when we break down um, pro athletes at the high end, you're seeing so many more extend their careers, right? In the NHL, I think Chris Chelios played until mm. he was like mid-40s. You got Tom Brady might win two more Super Bowls before he's 50, right? Athletes are just, they're, they're, they're getting on longer and longer and longer. You know, based on all the years that you've been involved in this industry, what are some of the practices that you've seen the athletes be able to extend their careers beyond the average person? The, the first thing is, and I think this is most important, is that when you see athletes do that, those athletes tend to have broken through what I'll just call the traditional patriarchy, where athlete is chattel, athlete does what coach says, and there's no, and that really is the old, or an older model. Mm-hmm. When the athlete is empowered to own their own experience and process, then you begin to see the athletes are like, yeah, I don't drink dairy because... You know, I have a ton of hockey players who can't handle whey protein. They just don't, like, gives them diarrhea and gas. Mm-hmm. But we're like, a whey protein shake is the best. They're like, but it gives me diarrhea and gas. Mm-hmm. But a whey protein shake is, and eventually they're like, hey, this vegetarian post-exercise protein is great. It doesn't give me diarrhea. I love it, right? And, yeah. and so it's on the ice, too. Yeah, yeah it's, that's, a, that's the, the brown pants are a bad, <laughs> bad, bad look. So that's a small example of, Really, what we've always talked about is expert clinicianship or expert coaching, which isn't, let me, let me give you an example. I train my daughters to be perfect products of the system and simultaneously tear down the system. Like that's what I'm, and to rebuild a better system, right? They, like they can't just be, like be in opposition. They always have to make the system better. Like this is the way we kind of live and see our world. But I have a daughter who's a junior, just wrapped up water polo. And I'm like, hey, look, if you want to have the kind of athletic experience that you're capable of, you all have to be much different athletes responsible for culture, not waiting for the coach to be responsible for culture. You need to, um, you know, lead the team, discuss, be vulnerable feedback. And the coach is a part of that plan. You know, uh, I think some of the best people on the planet who are really good at this are like the all blacks, for example, and the all blacks, they, coaches are highly involved in the beginning, putting a plan together. And at the end of the week, players are running the plan. Players are coaching themselves on the field. The, 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 the coach at that point is giving the players information that they may not be able to get for themselves. And so here's an example of my, my daughter in their last you know, game. There's 30 seconds left. They're going to lose. My daughter is running and helping run the team. And our coach is shouting, who's a great coach. Georgia, let me coach. And I'm like, Mm-mm, that genie is out of the bag. This is a kid <laughs> who's starting to understand what needs to be done and is starting to own the process, be responsible for her actions, not a coach told me to do this. I interacted that, right? That's the older model. And I'm not saying you should go against your coach all the time, but the conversation really needs to start to happen. And what we've seen is that in all the athletes who've begun to accelerate their own durability and longevity, they are much bigger stewards and have much greater ownership of the process. 
which means they've been empowered, but also they take a greater responsibility. Because I think a little bit what we used to say for athletes would be like, they'd be like, well, look how hard I trained. This is why I got injured because I just look, but it's not my fault because look how hard I trained. We called it plausible deniability, right? Mm -hmm. Versus saying, I, you know, Bill Romanowski is an old football player and he would get in the pool after a football game and stay in the pool until he stopped feeling stiff. And he knew that if he did that, then his session cost was less. He'd be able to perform better when he started adding supplements into his crappy diet, right? And eating, you know, and he was one of the founders and the early users of EAS. Remember that mm -hmm. in the 90s, right? Yeah, yeah. He started just hitting some of these foundations and he was able to play better and he started to own. And it was really in opposition or at least a, seemed radical. So someone like Brady figured out that smashing himself under big weights made him feel less good, mm -hmm. right? And someone trusted him enough to be like, well, let's go see how that works. And he's, you know, don't get me wrong, Brady, if you read his book, he doesn't just massage his, his calf. I mean, that guy is a mutant and training super hard, mm -hmm. but he, he figured out a long time ago that if he had some control over his eating, if he started to own his process more, that he felt better. And that's where we ultimately need to go in society where we're going to be able to empower people with the right tools. Look, I don't know if you need eight hours of sleep minimum or eight and a half hours of sleep minimum during heavy training, but we can figure that out, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if you, you know, turns out you just don't like beef. Great. Well, there's all these other things you can eat. So I think that's ultimately one of the, the benchmarks or the hallmarks of all of the athletes and people who are beginning to take responsibility, not just own the process, but take responsibility for the process instead of waiting around for the check engine light to go on or for the error message, they're starting to be a lot more proactive. And one of the things that I feel like is really disingenuous and still is, and is, I would say is really um, patronizing is to tell people that they can't tell what makes them feel better or perform better, right? I think humans are always going to act in their best interest. And that's one of our fundamental principles that if you help someone feel better, they will remember that and do that themselves, right? And I think athletes will always do what, work, what works. And sometimes they will waste their time sometimes because they don't know if it's working or not. And then sometimes mm -hmm. they'll reject what doesn't work. Coach, I felt like that just made me weak and slow. And we tried it again and I'm still weak and slow or I felt terrible. And, you know, I don't want to do that, right? You know, that's a great conversation. Mm -hmm. You see um, LeBron James, I was just thinking about him. The guy would invest, you know, one and a half million dollars into his body every year doesn't seem to be working does it <laughs> no last couple of weeks not so good but the last you know 18 19... i'm just kidding he's played over 1200 games in the nba 1200 games so I, i'm i'm a, i'm about a week older than him right i'm a little older than lebron james and i play in a men's league basketball once once a week one night a week i've had to modify my day after because yeah. of one game, one game. And the fact that he's done that many is, is amazing. 1200 games. I just went, just want to watch the Warriors. One of my uh, good friends is the, you know, head of physio there. And, um, you know, Iguodala just went over 1200 games too. And he spends a lot more time on the table in the weight room, working with the staff than the young guys. And it's because mm -hmm. their needs are slightly different as, you, as you're pointing out. And also imagine I told you like, that's all in your head, you know, and, you know, think about the kind of level of game you're playing at your age, your advanced age, you know, where, Legend. Um, that's right, <laughs> where, 
all of a sudden you are doing the right things. You're eating and sleeping and training and still you're feeling wrecked. And what ends up happening is that for the, for the typical person, because there's no typical person, but for a person who isn't doing those things, one of the end results is that they end up taking the basketball out of their program because they could not reduce, take that session cost and it was too expensive. And so our world gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And the extension of that is that pretty soon you're in a hospital without a window because you fell and you can't get up off the floor by yourself. So I want people to understand that it is, it is, as Greg Glassman said, varies by degree, not kind. Right. It really is that we have to be looking at these fundamental things. And then again, how strong do you play basketball? Well, some strength. You know, I push a prowler a lot. That is in my life a lot because I do not ever want an Achilles problem. So I push a heavy sled around my neighborhood a lot where I'm loading my calf in extension and I'm exposing myself to those forces a lot. Mm -hmm. And and some of it is, well, is that fitness? I really like what the Chinese do in the sort of Chinese Olympic lifting programs and national programs. They view skill as the limiting factor and skill carries all technique and all capacity. And so ultimately they're just using load to challenge skill. It's not about who can handle the largest loads, it's who can be the most skilled handling the largest load. Then they throw in a gigantic system which sorts through thousands of kids to find the most durable, motivated mm-hmm. kid yeah, who can then express the most technique and carry the load. But that is sort of the opposite of what we do here. And if we, if we let technique you know, and the development of technique carry cardiorespiratory demand or, you know, or strength or speed, then it becomes a lot easier to understand what's going on. Your skill wasn't enough to hold this position during training under these conditions. So let's change the conditions so you can maintain the skill. So this is an interesting uh, uh, topic that you bring up right now, because I'm sure a lot of people want to know, you know, with your vast experience as a strength conditioning coach, what's your take or what's your thoughts on when someone is lifting, they're lifting heavy, they're performing at a high rate, and they're starting to see technique breakdown. I know some school of thoughts say they're the outlier, let them go, they'll survive. Mm. And then some school of thoughts say, no, no, back the weight off, own technique before you add load. What has what, what, what your experience shown? Well, I think what we have to ask is, is this competition, first and foremost? Because I want us to view, ultimately, everything is about the expression of skill. How do I know? Well, at the, all the, if you look at the Olympic lifting in the Olympics, and Olympic is not a great example always because it's you know, recursive, but there are so many ways to get to the Olympics. I'm a Bulgarian lifter. I'm a Chinese lifter. I'm an American lifter. I'm a Canadian lifter, right? And yet the pole really doesn't change very much. Their techniques are so similar. What ends up being different is how long your torso is, how long your femurs are, what injuries did you have? I mean, those kinds of things. But isn't it interesting that people are battling within a kilo in a weight class, and yet they came from such different systems? So, you know, what I would say is, you know, the, the question is, what is the, what are we trying to do? And for us, what I want people to do is that if you're competing I want you to go and test your ability to hold positions because that's what it means to snowboard down a really ski slope. Like it's the test, right? Put yourself in the best position possible, given the, the variables, what's going on in your body and express the highest skill. And what you'll see is that if you work at high level sport, that is the game. That is everything over and over and over again. So 
if you fail to think about the human as a learning instrument, as a, as a constant learning, and you value only the development of physiologic traits as the thing, as long as you're stronger, you know, we hear it, strength solves all problems. I'm like, does it really? So if I deadlift 800, I'll be a better uh, 800 meter runner. Like not true, right? I won't be, you know, there's going to be some costs to be able to, you know, pull 800 off the ground. I might be a little stiff. Mm-hmm. Um, what, we, what we ultimately can start to say is, well, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes permanent. And what we're really doing is challenging skill. I will say that what I do is I come up with a hypothesis every day in the gym. Today, let's just say it's for simple sake, it's five by five. And you're going to be roughly at, you know, an RPE of 80% or, you know, I want you to, you know, hit this goal. We're going to work on some volume today or whatever it is. My hypothesis is that your weight, your specific weight, you're going to be able to hit five reps, five sets. And if you can't, we either weren't strong enough, which is like, okay, I just got to get stronger, right? I just need another cylinder on the car. I have a hundred cylinders on my car now, ready to go. Or there was, you weren't able to maintain your technique because the first five, three sets looked great. But what happened in the last sets? Well, maybe you weren't strong enough or didn't have the muscular endurance or skill to carry that, or you weren't able to compensate and fight through your compensations long enough. Remember, we don't just challenge load or position with load. We challenge it with car respiratory demand, right? What if I have you breathe hard and then jump into that front squat? What happens if I make you go fast and change direction? What happens if we add, you know, speed to that load? What happens if we you know, have to compete? What happens if it's, you know, now it's with a, instead of a barbell, it's some dumbbells. You have still have control. What happens if you're upside down or hanging from a pull-up rack? Are those the same shoulder positions? So ultimately we expect people to make errors in their training. What we're trying to do is always make the training sufficiently rigorous where the athlete is on the verge of beginning to see technique change, right? This is how and why we teach every tennis player the same way and it's move. And, but what I'm interested in is, can my athlete feel that they have made a technique change and correct it? And if they can't, because we've exceeded their ability to manage that, Right. Can you imagine we're just, hey, I'm going to, we're going to run 100 meter, 100 meter sprints, repeats. How many are we going to do? A thousand. What does your 500th, 100 meter repeat? It's slow. Your technique is breaking down. You're over. It's a brisk walk. It's a brisk walk. <laughs> At some point, we have to say, okay, well, if this is the case in all other conditions. Let's view these conditions. So the thing you're saying is, and for me, is in competition, that's really the test. Were you able to be strong enough or skilled enough to hold these positions under these loads? And that's why even in our in-house competition at our CrossFit gym, we had the virtuosity. We didn't coach. We were like, everyone understood that this was a chance to test your skill under the most stress. And what we saw is that most people defaulted to their training, which is excellent foot pressure, good foot positioning, stable, robust positions under all these conditions, even though they were going fast. It wasn't like we train, 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 and then we forget about that, right? These things have transferability. But ultimately, the thing that we're looking at is, can you assess when you have deviated from good technique, and that technique is the best expression of the system? And when that happens, we should reassess volume, load, speed, capacities, because you can no longer feel what's going on. And if you've ever been under 500 pounds, it's hard to hear what's happening in your body. (laughs) This is why we have coaches. This is why we film movements. This is why we get feedback. This is why we practice drills, right? So keep that in mind that for me, it's not just, hey, 
as long as your ligaments and tendons are fine, let's keep going because that's a dead end. And eventually we'll have to change the technique back to something else. Well, we'll have to, to re to chase a better technique. So that piece matters. The thing that I think really is funny about this conversation is that in modern strength and conditioning, you know, and sort of the fitness practice of the gym, we see very technical lifts that are very sound. And then all of a sudden conditioning, it goes out the door, you know, like, Oh, it's just a burpee. So it doesn't matter what I do, or I'm, you know, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just snatching a dumbbell or, or it's only a light snatch on this barbell now for 65 pounds or 55 pounds or 75 pounds. And so you can just do whatever you want. And I'm always like, Hey, this conditioning is just a, a cardiorespiratory low load ability to maintain your position. So if you're getting, doing a burpee and you're jumping and landing with your feet turned out and slamming your knees in your arches are collapsed. I'm like, Hey, that's maybe less effective unless we're having a contest about who can do the most burpees. And there's millions of dollars of line of, of, you know, millions of dollars of prize money on the line and get it done. Mm-hmm. But otherwise I'm Crossfit. looking for the yeah. most, most translation to the things that matter. So it sounds like what you're saying is uh, to make positioning a skill what you like to do is, is teach what it should look like. Here's the blueprint. And then what it should give, feel like, right? Or what it should feel like. Give the athlete autonomy to be able to identify themselves when they've gone beyond their capacity, back it off, and then build up their p- capacity over time. Am I right to say that? Well, you could say develop their ability for their skill to handle the additional loads or the additional volume, right? I mean, what is, what is one of the, you know, the biggest predictors of injury is change in volume, right? Sudden big change in volume, haven't moved. So there is a physiologic capacity underneath there. The body is rewriting itself all the time. But if we put the body into positions and have clear marks about when we begin to lose our ability to maintain our position, then suddenly we have a really tightly conjoined system where the athlete understands when she's losing position on a comeback or back into season, because all of a sudden she's overextending when she presses her head or her elbow starts to flare on the bench press, or mm-hmm. she starts to get a little, her foot pressure gets a little sloppy on the kettlebell swings, or she starts to breathe through her mouth and, and, you know, and her technique looks bad on the shuttle runs. What we haven't done or don't continue to do a good job of is helping the athlete establish what the markers of poor technique are or breakdown in technique and skill. And when I say that it's not, like an error. It's just, you're, you're now practicing a less effective way to move. And if we're getting everyone out of the, the burning building in a fire, that matters less. Let's go. We have stuff to do. If your life is on the line, if you're competing, I don't want you to think about your foot pressure. I want to practice, 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 practice. So, but when we give people the athletes the ability to feel, they're like, Oh, I had to cut that set at three. Why? Because I made, I started to lose my pressure. I started to dump forward the bar path was different. Oh, you're like, okay, good job. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's my daughter coaching in the pool. You know, that's yeah. what I want to, to do. And that's, that means that we have to become more skilled and more nuanced at being able to understand those. That's okay. We're human beings. We can do it. So for the, the pro athlete, sounds like you were saying that for the pro athlete, they have the longevity in the sport to be the LeBron James, Iguodala, to be the Tom Brady, they have to have some autonomy and take control of their own health. And if that's you're right. good enough, you can probably demand that. I'm, I'm Tom Brady. I'm going vegan, right? <laughs> you can't tell me what I'm not going to do. Maybe in year 10, not year one. But then let's let's backtrack to the average person here. So these are people who, you know, your gen pop, people who go to the gym on a regular basis. Maybe they play pickleball on Thursdays. If they want to get to being in their 50s, 60s, 70s, tackle a beast at some point in time, 
you know, what do they need to be doing to extend their longevity? Well, you know, what's great about all of us working in high performance sport is that we begin to see what best practice looks like at the top. And um, what, you know, E.O. Wilson says the highest, the highest calling of science is to inform the humanities. Means if we can't transform culture and society through science, and remember science is induction through big data sets. That's, that's the scientific method, that's Sir Francis Bacon. So we have to understand that we're like, oh, we really understand how much sleep you need to get. And we understand that you need to eat food, whole foods. And we need to understand that you need to walk a little bit more to decongest your tissues. So the first order of high performance business is to control the, these foundations of the, the environment so that we can add additional strain into the environment and challenge that. And suddenly you see that, well, turns out Michael Phelps does a lot of warm up in the pool. And then after his, his sessions, he would jump in the cool down pool. And the only time that changed was when he had to go back to back Olympic gold medal finals and he only had 22 minutes to recover. He wouldn't swim as much in the, in the pool because he was already warmed up. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, if you're, if Mike you know, Phelps is doing a lot of warm up and a lot of cool down, why aren't you? Like, why do you think you're different than the best athletes in the world who are? Why are you better than? <laughs> <laughs> now, these people are already genetic mutants and already have a genetic component that makes them a lot more durable. So, mm-hmm. and we can test for that. You know, my genetics indicate I'm, I have poor recovery skills compared to the population of, of athletes I've been compared to, right? So my desire to train, 99th percentile. Like, I'm like, let's go. Desire to move. I have all these genetic markers. They're like, let's go, let's go, let's go. Probably my wife says I have like undiagnosed ADD, right? ADHD. Like, I'm like always kind of monkey brain. And then simultaneously, I have this inability to handle the kinds of volumes that my friends can handle. And they are, I have some mutant friends who are just like, you know, they cut off an arm and the next day they have an arm again. And I'm like, what happened? How do you do that? So I've had to make sure that I can feel and take care of those foundational principles so that at least I can be 100% of 80% of my friends. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the reasons I really want people to, especially coaches, to engage in some kind of test practice, right? Some kind of event, some kind of thing, because you can kind of see that in general exercising, you can have a bad day. You know, you go to CrossFit and you suck because you just smashed a bunch of pizza and beer. But if you're going to compete or do something big, you suddenly have to sort of take your own medicine. You have to eat your own cooking. And the first order of business for everyone there is to start to say, well, you know, am I taking care of these foundational practices? And then secondarily, we can begin to say, well, are you exposing yourself or are you exposing your body to the positions required to be a a human being with the most movement choice? So yeah, you may not be able to have to put your arm over your head very often, but you need to be able to be competent with your arm over your head because that's one of the things that every doctor, every physical therapist, every car on the planet believes you should be able to do. The question is, and I think this is what's, what gets confusing for a lot of physical therapists is, you know, the only conversation they're having is about, is this about pain or no pain, right? And I'm not talking about a pain or no pain. We try to take common musculoskeletal pain and put it into the context of like missing range of motion, poor force production, it's information, it's your body's request for change. Chronic pain is a little bit different. Um, You know, we think of chronic pain like a really, you know, a catastrophic injury. We should kind of treat those things. We have to manage them very differently, Mm -hmm. right? But, you know, your knee hurts after a run, 
you know, what, what is that information saying? Right. And it may, it doesn't definitely does not mean that your knee is injured or there's something going on in your knee, right. Just this information about what the system's happening. So, you know, ultimately we can start to ask then, well, how are you training these positions? And are you able to do that under these sort of variations of position, load, speed, metabolic demand? But for example, most people just aren't very good at extending their hip. I don't mean standing up from a squat. I mean, taking the hip into extension. Mm -hmm. We look at the total amount of time they're spending in a flexed hip position compared to how much time they're spending in a, an extended hip position. It's like 99 to one. And so we suddenly we suddenly were like, oh, well, when you start to run, you're you can't access this position. So, so much of our physical practices is about saying, what are the positions the body should be able to express? And then we can say, well, how are you loading that? Under speed, cardiovascular demand, metabolic demand, et cetera, et cetera. And then as soon as you snap in any formal movement training program on top of it, you're like, oh, there's a reason why the kettlebell people do all the kettlebell stuff plus bench press, right? There's a, there's a reason that the Olympic lifters do all of the Olympic lifting Press, they do a bunch of pulling, like one arm rows and a lot of bench press because those positions are not expressed in any of their other movement patterns, but everything else pretty much is. So suddenly it's a lot easier to understand why these foundational movement practices are they are and why even why we use accessory work. I'm like accessory work is if you bench squat and deadlift, your accessory work is just keeping an eye on the things that your body should be able to do. How simple is that, right? Mm -hmm. I want you to do some rear elevated foot squats. Why is that? Well, you need to be able to train that hip with the hip knee behind your body in extension. And all we're doing is keeping an eye on those, those things. And then suddenly you're like, oh, how, what are the minimums that I can get away with so I can go spend my credits the way I want to? I'm a cyclist. How heavy do I need to, some squatting is probably required to be a cyclist. So you can develop the control and tissue tolerance, but now we can sort of ask ourselves what's minimums. And that is a recipe for being really durable for a long time. Understanding the minimums that people need to have. In or some area. exposure because people aren't, you know, they're not even getting any exposure here. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Last time you were on here, you and I talked about the exposure of just standing, the standing, how it's so beneficial for kids in the schools. You put those things in place, uh, the standing desk for, for kids and so forth. And remember uh, that it was about moving, right? It wasn't even about standing. It was about, Hey, I see that kids in these little flexed shrimp postures for, you know, many, many hours a day is less conducive to a body that's durable and ready to go in the long haul. So mm -hmm. movement, right. Mm -hmm. With this last, uh, with, with the pandemic, obviously a lot of people have been increasing their sitting. You know, a lot of people have been working from home and stuff. Let's say we had the time machine. Okay. I just pulled out the time machine and said, Kel, you and I are going back. We're going back to 2020, February, just before the world shuts down. And you can give a message. You're going to tell everyone they're going to be sitting a lot moving forward. And you can give them two or three movement patterns. Say, you got to be prepared to do this on a daily basis to be more durable. What would you say? Well, the first thing there is to say, you know, let's treat our environment like a test and to say, how, how have we in health and fitness done to prepare people for the rigors of COVID? Were people, did people know how to exercise at home? A lot of people did not. Did they know how to cook at home? They did not. Did they know how to you know, be around other people or self? Like what we saw was that a lot of the things that we were just getting by on weren't very robust that we took exposed. a few we took a, yes right we exposed ourselves a lot well it turns out for example we can apply that thinking to someone's kitchen and we saw that hey your kitchen table isn't really a great work environment you're on a little tiny screen right 
there's a reason why it's called a desktop and a laptop, right? And you didn't have a desktop at home and wasn't really conducive to a lot of movement. And I saw that my kids had to be in a room separate so they could be on Zoom, right? And the, the environment was asking them to be on Zoom seven, eight hours a day, right? How can I constrain the environment so that I have a better outcome? Well, it turns out again, some people were able to go out and walk and some people weren't, right? You may live in a high rise building, you couldn't get sun on your body. Like there's some errors here. Fortunately, humans are very durable, but what we began to see is the, the, you know, we found out that humans need to be around other humans, that a brain isn't a brain unless it's around other brains. So we've seen social decay. We saw people get depressed. We saw drinking go through the roof mm-hmm. because people were trying to self-soothe a lot of real stress and uncertainty. We lost our business in one of our businesses in the pandemic. Um, I developed an ulcer from being super stressed. That gave me hiccups. I hiccuped for 11 days, Right. I had access to all of these things and still a lot of stress going on. So imagine if, you know, the, what we can start to say is, well, what can we control in this environment? And then how do we set up your environment so that you don't have to have this enormous willpower to do this, right? That, you know, you eat breakfast, then you need to walk around your flat or go around your house for 10 minutes a day. Okay, well, we can go three 10-minute walks. Okay, that's some sunshine, you know, um, what we can begin to say is, well, maybe now is not the best time to really worry about your fitness, but your durability. So what we saw is if you know you're going to be sitting, because that's how your environment is set up, it seems to me that we want to make sure that you have movement choice, that you can fidget, that you can be at your counter, that you can sit on the floor, that you can sit on the couch. We want to make sure that you did something like sun salutation or our hip spin up every day. Mm-hmm. So at least you were like brushing your range of motion and flossing your teeth sort of thing, like reminding your nervous system. Yes. We put our arms over our head and our shoulders come behind our body and, you know, look at what happens with people's, you know, could I put a breathing mechanical ventilation practice? We had a lot of things that we could do to just nurture us through until we could get back to the gym or get out in the park. And so, a little bit of this is the variation of saying, well, what was accessible to you and what can we control in this environment? And I think that would have been a different message just saying, hey, look, let's look at this. And then again, lay over. What is it a human being needs to do? Well, we have to move more in the day just to decongest our tissues, just to move the lymph around. Or you don't have a jump rope? Well, you can bounce in place in your kitchen, right? And you could be doing that kind of bouncing just to get your organs moving and wake you up. So there's a thousand ways. What we found is that our industrial for-profit entertainment fitness system prepared, prepared people very poorly for being isolated and being able to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Failure on us, not someone else. Everyone else is a product of the system. If you have all this access, if you have a kettlebell in your kitchen, you didn't use it, that's your choice. Totally respect that. But that's not the same thing as I, I don't have a kettle. I don't know how to swim kettle. I don't even know what to do next, right? Because I can't go to my, my in-person dance fitness class. This might be um, uh, very beneficial for health and fitness, the fact that this happened, because a lot of people would have to open their eyes and be like, oh, if this happens again, I need to be prepared. Right? Yeah, I think we should say seat, when it happens again. At one point, right? Seatbelts yeah. were never a thing until they were. Well, I, I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, environmental changes here, how durable and readily, you know, this isn't, 
just so everyone understands, this isn't the first time we've thought about these sets of problems. So in the United States, we have the presidential physical fitness test, right? And it was created by Kennedy. And Kennedy created this presidential physical fitness test to keep eyes on physical minimums for children because he was recognizing that we had a, with the looming Cold War, we did not have a population that could be deployed in a military action. We weren't fit enough, we weren't strong enough, we weren't durable enough. So he went into the schools and was like, ha, physical fitness, right? And really like, if you did that, you were part of a military propaganda system to make the population healthy enough. That's crazy when you think about it. Cause wow. you're like, the yeah. flex arm hang, and, you know, that's going over the monkey bars and, you know, doing <laughs> the shuttle run. And, and that was because back then someone realized that we were, we had a population that wasn't thriving or thriving enough to meet <laughs> these sort of these physical minimums in, in military science. And, you know, again, I think when we, when we view the world as changed, that we have to do a better job of getting everyone to base camp. And then we can say, well, how, how fit do you want to be? But if you can't, here's a simple test that you can do with your family. Well-validated, good study, doesn't matter. You sit on the ground cross-legged and then get up off the ground without putting your D down, your hands down, just up and down cross-legged. Every child can do it. Every person, it doesn't require full range of motion. doesn't require a lot of strength, but every point of contact you have to put down a hand to get up a knee is another sort of indicator that you're likely to have early mortality and greater morbidity. And that's just getting up and down off the ground. Well, it turns out if you just practice that a lot during the day, you know, your range of motion is going to be better. Your strength is going to be better, which means I just want you to watch TV while you're sitting on the ground. Mm-hmm. If you have to take a break and check your email and get on your phone on TikTok, just sit on the ground and do it. You're going to have mm-hmm. to get up and down off the ground a whole bunch more. So if we can constrain the environment so that the human doesn't have to make another choice, then that is what we're trying to do. And that actually isn't very different than what we think every kid should do. How do we want to teach kids skills through play? How do we want to teach them life lessons through play? I mean, if that seems radical to you, that's one of the reasons, that's the rationale for why, like, we love soccer for kids, right? They learn how to be on a team and work together through, what is it, right? Play. Mm -hmm. So how do we do set up the world through play and through interaction? Well, a dinner party is play. Cooking for each other is play. So, you know, if you want to have a set of skills that rhymes with, I am a durable person, who also be, happens to be following into the best practices, I think it's more simple than we think. I, but I think we haven't told anyone what that looks like. And as long as we're bombing them with Apple Fitness, you need a Peloton, you know, this, mm-hmm. you know, we, um, just this weekend, my daughter and I went up and saw a family friend and their dog had lost 10 pounds, right? And my daughter was like, wow, isn't that amazing? You fed the dog less, you exercised her a little bit more and she lost 10 pounds and humans need detoxes and fat burners and diet teas <laughs> and right. And like complex electronics. Yeah. Right. So I think, you know, as long as we are battling that, we don't have to get, we don't have to play a perfect game. There's not a perfect system. You're very durable, but we have to be thinking a little bit differently about it every day because we are running this experiment at decades, centuries long, timeframes. I think that's what we oftentimes fail to appreciate. You know, like I'll do it in the future. I'll clean up my diet in the future. I'll walk more in the future. Mm-hmm. That fe- we sort of value that future behavior more than 
because that, that future us will have more time and more resources and more availability and more motivation. Not true. So really, I don't think, I don't, I don't think if you want to be shredded and strong, it's going to take some work. And as you know, there's just no substitution for being in the weight room for a long time, practicing, 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 practicing. You know? 100%. Kelly, my takeaways from our conversation today are uh, to be that longevity-based athlete forever. You have to have a lot of autonomy in your own health, listen to your body, respond to your body, and then prioritize your body. Same and similar for average people, average population. Also addressing that you need to be able to have position as a skill and practicing that and knowing when you're going too far. Get in the gym to be good outside of the gym. That was one of the things that, that I got as a takeaway. Yes, and when you when you watch Dr. Phil sit on the floor as you do it and get up with no hands. Killed it. Killed <laughs> it. Right. And and so, some sunshine on your bone, your body. A little bit of that, also, some sleep, maybe some yeah, good food. Yes. And uh, and have some good friends and relationships. Go play with your friends. You know? I love it. I love it. The uh, the Ready State program here, what's what, what's new? What's going on with that stuff there? I've had a ton of clients who really enjoyed it so far. Uh, thank you. You know, what we're trying to do with our program is is make it people better prepared to go train or reduce the session cost from the training, right? That like, you know, your sort of range of motion, the ability to express that range of motion is a moving target. So how do we minimize that or have some input? And when things pop up, you know, that are a little painful, a little sore, how do you manage that? So um, one of the things that we're really excited about is our app has, we have a new app that you may or may not know about. And um, we have a killer self-assessment in there. I don't think you need AI. I don't think you need, I think you need to be able to feel, understand what your movement minimums are. And some of those are big blind spots for you, but they're normative ranges. We're just saying, hey, you don't need to be Simone Biles on the, you know, you know, who, by the way, stretches before she does her warm up with her team because she's so old at age, what, 30? <laughs> right, so legend. Keep it, that's right. So keep in mind that, uh, you know, when we begin to say, hey, look, these are the ranges that everyone should have. And it's easy to test that and look at that and sort of keep an eye on your minimums. I think that's easier. We also just launched our, or just about to launch our new course called Train the Injured Athlete. Mm -hmm. We have come more and more to believe that we should not be relying on our physios and our doctors for health. They're the people we want to help us when we've had catastrophe and injury and trauma, mm -hmm. but everything else we should not be going to our physios for. Or, you know, is that course good for like personal trainers and conditioning coaches? Exactly. And our idea here is we want coaches and trainers to be better educated and first line defense about being better at, you know, you can't see your physical therapist enough. Your physical therapist isn't set up for you to return to soccer. Where do you learn that? So we want our coaches to be better educated and better skilled about not messing something up, but also not just waiting for years to pass before we begin to talk about putting your arms over your head. So how do we begin that? And again, I just think that the, the coach for me is the, still the center of healthcare in the world. That's where people are getting their information. The coach sees you three to five times a week. They are the most important healthcare agents in your life. Very educational. I always appreciate your time coming on here. So anyone listening, um, if you have the show notes and you can use uh, Project 10 as the coupon code, you can get a free trial for two weeks of the Ready State program. And I'm super excited to try that course out myself. I'm looking forward to that drop. And Kelly, as always, Project Fitness, thank you for coming on the show. Nice to see you again, my friend.